When we look back on this year, it seems likely that we'll remember 2020 for at least three things. A hopefully once in a generation pandemic, a long period of isolation followed by an interminable and politicized lockdown, and a brutal presidential election. Although it would be far better to focus ourselves on the good and on the many reasons we have for hope for overcoming so many of the divisions that threaten our shared life together as Americans. Judge Amy Coney Barrett and her elevation to the U.S. Supreme Court should be, and God willing will be, remembered as a victory for our shared, albeit stressed, American spirit. Erica Bakiaki joins Life, Liberty, and Law today to reflect on Amy Coney Barrett as a new feminist icon, to share her perspective on the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and to preview her forthcoming book, The Rights of Women, Reclaiming a Lost Vision. Erica is a fellow with the Ethics and Public Policy Center and a legal scholar specializing in equal protection jurisprudence, feminist legal theory, Catholic social teaching, and sexual ethics. Erica is also a senior fellow at the Abigail Adams Institute, where she founded and directs the Wollstonecraft Project. I'm Tom Shakley, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. I'm Tom Shakley, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law from Americans United for Life, where we advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Erica Bakiaki and Noah Brandt. Erica, how are you doing? Hi, good. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be with you. It's such a pleasure to be with you, and Noah, pleasure to have you back as well. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. Excited to uh, to speak with Erica. This has been an interesting Supreme Court confirmation process. That's right. So, Erica, you've done a lot of great writing, but recently one of your pieces really popped on Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and on Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, you wrote in America Magazine, and I want to start there um, about uh, about both of these incredible women in our public life. Thank you. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Erica, you recently wrote in America Magazine on the legacy of Justice Ginsburg. You know, among the pro-life community, we think about her impact, and it leads directly to thinking about her tragic decisions when it comes to abortion and the human right to life. You know, you bring this reality to stark light because you praise Ginsburg the person, which is important because she was an amazing woman, while not ignoring her considerable impact on the high court. I want to just read a little bit of what you wrote then have you respond. You wrote, quote, Miss Ginsburg's unflappable resilience, reputation for equanimity and composure, and dedicated work on behalf of others are admirable human qualities, ones that our nation rightly honors. Indeed, they are virtues my husband and I work to inculcate in our children, and I'm grateful we can point to Miss Ginsburg's life as, an, as exemplary in this regard. But even as she upheld important rights for vulnerable populations as a judge on the D.C. Court of Appeals and then a Supreme Court justice, she also argued that the right to abortion was at the very heart of the legal equality between men and women. And when the foremost authority on women's rights say so, many people listen, my daughters and sons listen too. That's powerful, Erica. Tell us about that. Tell us about Ginsburg, the person, the American, and Ginsburg, the justice, and how we can sort of contemplate her legacy. 
Yeah, I think it's it's uh, particularly hard in our culture today to um, make sort of a public and reasoned argument separating the wheat from the chaff, <laughs> because people generally try to you know uh, stay kind of on one side or the other and not and not praise kind of their political rivals, I guess you could say. But I think it's really really important that we do so. And I. Tom really appreciated your introduction because I think that's right. There's so much sort of rebuilding we need to do. And part of that is just, you know, respecting the people, the person before us. And I think there is a lot to respect in, in Ginsburg's life. Um, first of all, I mean, her marriage was really quite beautiful um, and, she, you know, should be heralded, um, you know, to just see that a, a really lifelong marriage of two people supporting one another um, in sort of all avenues of life, I think is is just a beautiful thing and and one that we we should be kind of holding up for for all. And then, you know, I've um, have, you know, in different work that I've done, um, uh, law review articles, but then also in the forthcoming book, I really do commend Justice Ginsburg's work as an advocate, actually for the ACLU in the nineteen seventies, in which she very carefully uh, shepherded the Supreme Court to recognize, the ways in which, as she would kind of put it, that women had been pigeonholed as caregivers and men as providers. And so by doing so, she opened up a new era, you could say, in which um, both men and women could be respectably and responsibly engaged in both avenues of fulfillment, basically according to, you know, their personal talents and circumstances. And I think, you know, she was raised at a time when mothers were seen as more capable and essential to their children's upbringings than were fathers. And so with the you know vast number of American children still in our country raised without their fathers, I think it's really, really important. It was really important for the highest ranking feminist in the land, you could say, um, you know, to say something like uh, a quote I, I um, have that America article. You know, she said, this is my dream for society, fathers loving and caring for and helping to raise their children. So really important for her to make statements like that. But the problem is, of course, and this is what I really get into um, in the article, is that you know, she really failed, I think, to recognize in many different ways how her argument um, that abortion was necessary for women's equality. I mean, she's sort of the foremost proponent of that view. And she even goes so far to say abortion rights are necessary for women's equal citizenship. And I think what, you know, was unintentional, uh, but has certainly come to pass culturally is that that view and, you know, the right to abortion for now 50 years almost really undercuts that dream that Ginsburg have of fathers loving and caring for and helping to raise their children. Certainly that's true in many families, but as many pro-lifers have pointed out before me, you know, abortion tends to relieve men of their mutual responsibilities um, for the care of, of dependent children. And, you know, you can, you know, just look at uh, even, you know, Alan Guttmacher um, of Planned Parenthood, who he saw this very clearly in the in uh, in the late 1960s and the years before Roe. He said, abortion on demand relieves men of all possible responsibility. He simply becomes a coital animal, uh, a sexual animal. Right. You could, you know, Guttmacher maybe wouldn't have been so surprised by the Me Too movement. And I think, you know, I trace sort of how that argument in all its subtlety um, plays out. And I think, um, you know, Ginsburg's full supporters have failed to acknowledge that. Yeah, you know, it's incredible, Erica. We've spoken with Gracie Olmsted previously on Life, Liberty, and Law. And, you know, one of the things we talked about was as we think just about day-to-day -day life and what healthy family life, healthy community life looks like, especially in the context we're in right now where um, you know, we don't really call them this anymore, but, you know, classically we would call so many of the homes that we've experienced uh, broken, right, in some way, uh, either fathers leaving wives, 
um, you know, uh, mothers leaving their children, uh, children also being cold and, and leaving their family in various ways, right? There's this alienation at the heart of our public life that leads us to act as if we're just totally autonomous individuals that have no real bonds or commitments other than, you know, like voluntarily chosen ones. The idea that we're born into a community and born into a family and that we have certain relationships that are kind of immutable, right? Um, and that carry uh, responsibilities as much as they confer rights. These things have kind of evaporated from our culture to a degree. And I, I guess I wonder, you know, how much do you see the fight over the last 50 years, uh, 100 years, if you go back further and, and talk about folks like uh, Sanger and Guttmacher, how much do you see this as a, a very peculiar phenomenon? Because I think, you know, you look 150, 200 years ago, or most of human civilization, and the idea that families would be separated, like physically separated in the way they are today, where, you know, uh, mothers and fathers are out of the home working, where they're commuting hours uh, back and forth to work, um, where children are not being educated in the community, right? Even whether that's in the home or just in, in the local community, walking to school, all these things in modern life, right, conspire to separate us. And how much of that, I guess, is, is in, you know, we look at an issue like abortion, and then abortion is presented as a solution to these struggles of modern life. Yeah, no, I think you've actually put your finger right on it. Um, and I think, you know, the way I kind of frame these things and why I actually call myself a feminist, you know, some on um, on the right, um, conservatives, fellow conservatives and, uh, you know, pro-lifers kind of um, bristle at that term sometimes. But I think it's helpful to sort of see these kinds of questions um, uh, through the kind of framework of sexual asymmetry, you know, so that there are basic differences between men and women that give rise to reproductive asymmetry and that, you know, all throughout human history, we've kind of had to respond to sexual asymmetry, reproductive asymmetry, bas the basic fact that men and women engage in the same act, but it's women who, uh, you know, are disproportionately, um, uh, you know, contribute um, in, in the reproductive um, uh, realm, right? Both in terms of um, childbearing and then also throughout human history in terms of caregiving. And so how we respond to this is, um, you know, sort of an urgent question. I think you sort of put your, you know, your, um, you know, your, your uh, finger on it in saying that, you know, for most of human history, we've really seen the family and especially marriage itself be the sort of fundamental response. Um, and, and so, you know, prior time, I mean, you look in agrarian times, especially where there's a lot of collaboration in the home and in the family, um, and, you know, the division of labor isn't um, isn't so sharp as it became during the Industrial Revolution. And I, I think a lot of this, you know, the pains that we're we're facing now sort of come to bear during the Industrial Revolution when there's this and during sort of um, the rise of, of liberalism um, with John Locke, et cetera, where there's this, um, you know, relegation of women to a private sphere, a newly erected private sphere. And, you know, men become wage earners and go out into the world and though women are, you know, heralded by many, like, you know, say, Alcide de Tocqueville or whoever for really nurturing, you know, Republican citizens and, and so forth with inculcating virtue and all of that, um, there's a certain uh, dependency that, um, that grows in women who had been very interdependent before, you know, when you're depending for, uh, on your, upon your wage earning husband. Um, for, you know, uh, you know, his wages when it had been in terms of the agrarian um, household where there was much, much in interdependence where husbands were just as dependent on on their wives uh, for, you know, their livelihood, really. 
um, I think things get um, a little difficult for women. And so you see the rise, you know, over over the decades of of a women's movement of, of a, you know, clamoring for women's rights, both in the home in terms of, you know, joint property ownership and then in terms of the vote and things like that. But I think there's always been this question of how to, you know, deal with these sorts of asymmetries. And I think you're right to point to the fact that in human history, it's always better when we look toward collaboration, when we look for, you know, reciprocity, um, mutual responsibility, rather than, you know, saying suddenly with sort of liberal theorists that, you know, we're really all autonomous. Um, you know, really, our responsibilities are only those that are chosen. Um, there's nothing really given. And, um, and and so men can sort of act that way, I guess you could say. But when it comes to women, that's certainly not the case, right? I mean, women bear children. They are not physically autonomous when they are pregnant. And so the response of the 1970s feminists was to say, well, you know, we're going to sort of imitate the autonomous, this sort of legend, you know, legendary autonomous male um, by uh, when, when women, you know, leave the private sphere and enter the public sphere, um, they need to be autonomous too. And frankly, this was explicitly said by um, those theorists that, that Ginsburg follows um, in her views of equal citizenship, that autonomy is sort of the most elevated value in equal citizenship. And so, of course, it follows that, you know, being encumbered by children and dependents does not make one equal. And I think she really failed to see how that kind of view um, of equality, which, you know, dispenses with dependence is going to really, you know, um, upend her her rhetorical and I think in her own, you know, lived experience of wanting to, to celebrate caregivers and celebrate marriage and the family and that type of thing. I think for the poor, it's been especially difficult. Um, you know, there's been a special, uh, you know, cleavage between, um, you know, child, child rearing and marriage and and all of that in the poor, especially. And that's who it's been hardest hit. Yeah, I think that's on the money, Erica. I want to read another short excerpt from your piece on Justice Ginsburg. You say, you write, contrary to this increasingly popular understanding, easy abortion access has not rendered women freer or more equal, rather in tearing at the first bond of human solidarity between a mother and her unborn child. The right to abortion has distorted the shared responsibilities that adhere in male and female sexual relationships, promoted a view of childbearing as one consumer choice among many, and greatly contributed to the dim view of caregiving ever since. I love the part, especially, Erica, about childbearing is one consumer choice among many. And I think that our abortion culture and sort of Justice Ginsburg's contribution to it have increased that really pernicious view that like whether we have a kid is sort of just like whether we're going to buy a car this year or buy a house. Do you think that's where we are right now? Yeah, I mean, I hate to see <laughs> that we would be that far off, but it is like, you know, when you conceive of childbearing as kind of, you know, a private decision. And so, you know, it's privately um, a you know, decision whether or not you, you decide, you know, you go forth with um, your pregnancy and then it becomes like a private responsibility. And this all lands on women, of course, right? And so in prior times, you know, this is a, this would be a, Uh, you know, childbearing and child rearing is a public good. It's something that ought to be celebrated, encouraged, um, you know, in some way, um, you know, uh, um, uh, remunerated in some way through the tax code and those types of things, because it's so essential to, you know, the future, obviously, of 
civilization, but but also that the that the you know that virtues and um, and kind of you know that are inculcated and and the love that's given um, in the family is you know bedrock necessary for um, every you know economic, social, uh, political good that we have. It's really a precondition to it. And so I think when you, you know, sort of think in this, what I call in my book, a kind of capitalistic way of thinking where you're sort of weighing costs and benefits, you forget that there are, you know, certain things, well, say human beings, for instance, that stand outside of those sorts of calculuses. Um, and that really, you know, the best way of going about things would be to, um, you know, value uh, human beings uh, and the care of them and then organize society around it. Uh, and so, you know, that there's that there just are some things that are more important uh, that, that can't stand within that kind of cost benefit analysis. And and it's hard for people who are so formed kind of by a market mentality. Um, and, and this is no blow to, you know, a free market. I mean, those are different sorts of questions. But the free market in the way of thinking that the free market kind of inculcates in us has kind of crowded out all other ways of thinking. And I think um, I think that's a real problem for us right now. And, and you see it on both the left and the right. Yeah, you know, Erica, we're going to talk about your forthcoming book soon. But there's another book out just recently from uh, Carter Sneed. Uh, it's called What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. And Carter writes on some of these themes, too. You know, and one of the things he's reintroducing is some of the thought of Alistair McIntyre. Um, but you know, more broadly, this, this sort of same sense of, of embodiedness and responsibility to one another. Uh, you know, he writes at one point that, uh, that it's important that we are anchored in the firm belief that we can only govern ourselves wisely, humanly, and justly if we become the kind of people who can make each other's goods our own, right? And that's, that's I think, exactly the contra of, of the autonomy culture or the free market attitude toward human life uh, that you're right, I think, is uh, is an unfortunate uh, type of bipartisanship in our current moment. Um, but I want to shift gears uh, now. So, you know, in the context of your writing about uh, the late Justice Ginsburg, you also wrote recently about Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, you wrote in Politico on Amy Coney Barrett, uh, and it was a, a provocative piece. I know it really, uh, really kind of caught fire. You wrote about Amy Coney Barrett as a new feminist icon, uh, and uh, I'm hoping you can you can talk a little bit about that now in contrast to everything we've been discussing so far. Yeah, it uh, you know it was uh, I was happy to see that it was um, actually made Dredge Report. I've always wanted to be you know. <laughs> yes. You deserved it. It was such a good piece. <laughs> so um, yeah, I I uh, really you know have so much admiration um, for Judge Barrett, and it looks you know as though her confirmation will go through. Um, you know when. Justice Kavanaugh um, had, you know, been uh, nominated and elevated the court. CNN asked me what I thought, and I said, "Well, you know, I wish it had been Judge Barrett, or actually, you know, just yeah, Amy Coney Barrett." Um, and I think, you know, I, I talked about in a in a piece then in Mirror of Justice, just a blog post, um, just that you know, Amy Coney Barrett kind of represents what I call uh, a dignitarian feminism, up and against exactly what we've been talking about—this sort of autonomy feminism—and I think she does that in a number of ways. Um, I mean, there's just a, there's certainly an integrity and a dignity about her very life. Um, and I think, you know, she just in her very person, she puts to rest this deeply influential abortion rights dogma that is really, as we've talked about at the heart of feminism today, and really was bought by the court hook, line and sinker in the 1992 Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Um, 
this idea that participation in the economic and social life of the nation, as they say, kind of, you know, rely or, you know, uh, relies on abortion, requires women to sacrifice their lives of their children. And so here you see this enormously talented, you know, um, as actually, you know, Carter Sneed, who you just mentioned, who's a friend, um, generationally brilliant, I think um, she, you know, he calls her, um, you know, she seems to be like firing on all cylinders, which is the way <laughs> I'd like to say, you know, she's just got this uh, joyful and happy marriage, um, very collaborative marriage, as I write about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously um, a very full and happy home life. And then she has risen to the top of, you know, the real pinnacle of her profession. And as I point out, you know, not uh, many women who have seven children are, you know, capable, um, you know, for, have the time <laughs> to ever become a Supreme Court justice. Um, so certainly she's probably alone in, in that set of people. But um, but just seeing, um, you know, being sort of, you know, as a mother of seven myself, um, you know, feeling kind of represented in our way of life on the court um, is, is just a, it's a really moving, um, really beautiful thing. And to see how, you know, she held herself up with, with so much dignity during uh, the confirmation hearings and that she really, you know, I think the way I use dignitarian feminism is in, in a second sense and sort of an older sense of, of dignitarian in terms of excellence. You know, she she seeks to be, you can tell, excellent in all realms of her life. And I think that that's, it's just a really admirable quality. Um, and, and, you know, one further thing is I think if you look at, you know, the judges and the justices who've really been admired in our constitutional republic, you know, decades and uh, uh, back, you see that humility really stands at, at the kind of heart of that kind of really great judicial temper, uh, temperament or, or disposition. And I think you see in her a real humility, and that gives me a lot of hope for um, for her opinions coming down the pike. Yeah, you know, you write in your piece that, uh, quote, Barrett says that for both parents, the needs of the Barrett children came first, their professions second, and yet both their children and their professions thrived. Rather than assume caregiving is a woman's choice, you write, to embrace or reject on her own, as Roe does, the Barretts recognize that both mothers and fathers are encumbered by their shared responsibilities to the dependent children in their care. That's the new feminism building upon while remaking the old feminism, you say. I think it's a powerful thing, right? Because you're right, feminism itself is, like so much in our public life right now, is politicized. Um, And seeing in Amy Coney Barrett exactly, you know, what I think older generations, you know, whether 100 years ago or more, they would look at Amy and Jesse Barrett and they would just say, well, that's just a healthy family life. But today, people look at it through this political lens. You know, I know I saw reporting from some folks who said, oh, well, she, you know, why would somebody even have a large family? And it's almost as if she's using her children for props, I've seen people say. And it's just like, if we're at a point in this country where the idea of, A, having a family life like the Barretts do, and B, you know, actually having children as a as a, a fruit of the love of, of a husband and wife seems so alien. It's like I almost don't know where that where to go next. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, there it is a real admirable um, family life. I mean, you just see it's a beautiful, beautiful family to see. You know, just the care they have for one another, I think, is really beautiful. And if you listen, I actually um, I linked to an interview I saw of her, and I think there's many that you could watch, but. It just really shows kind of the docility and the collaboration of the two of them. You know, one of the things she says that I just, it was one of my favorite parts that I didn't get to put in the, put in the piece, but what she talks about is, you know, we didn't have a plan ahead of time. It just unfolded. And I think that's where you see, you know, 
this kind of trust, I mean, obviously as a woman of faith um, and, and, a, and a, her husband is a man of faith, just a real trust in providence, you know, and, and that just striving for excellence in all realms of life and then just being docile to see what comes next, you know, and, and just the collaboration and the love and support they have for one another. And again, seeing the children's well-being ahead of everything else, ahead of either of their professions and just doing, you know, you know, again, putting one step in front of the other and then and just seeing what comes next. And I think, you know, one of the one of the real ways um, to kind of um, to see the, the failures of, of um, the, you know, the lens that people are looking through is that, again, people really do see themselves in our culture. And again, this is, I think, this capitalistic ethic as kind of employees first or workers first <clears throat> and parents second. And so it's no you know, surprise that our um, our workplaces kind of do the same thing. You know, they want they you know, workplaces want to own their their uh, their employees and kind of um, they want to kind of replicate the family. But really, the family is the foundational thing. And so it really, you know, we need to have sort of a cultural shift where we see that we are caregivers, mothers and fathers and other t- kinds of caregivers, you know, for our elderly parents and for uh, the vulnerable and dependent at large in our in our society, we're, we're those first and that we do our work um, and our work can be incredibly, you know, pleasant at some times and very fulfilling and sometimes it can not be, um, but, but that the work is there to serve the family and not kind of the family to serve uh, the workplace. And I think that that's a really enormously important cultural shift that hopefully, you know, the elevation of, of um, Judge Barrett to a Justice Barrett um, will help to sort of start to see sort of sprinkle through the culture as people start to, you know, contemplate what it is that she means. Yeah, I think some of this, at least some of the angst of this moment uh, is driven by sort of an incomprehensibility, right? Because we've been taught now for how long, you know, not just since formally since Planned Parenthood v. Casey in terms of jurisprudence, but there's been this cultural idea we've been touching upon of of reliance, right? Like the reliance interest on abortion that the Supreme Court posits that we can only succeed with abortion. Um, that sort of, you know, well, right or wrong, it's here now and now people rely on this terrible thing. And so we've got to keep it around. But I think there's also this idea, too, that to succeed, um, you need to uh, avoid even trying to pursue many of the things that Amy and Jesse Barrett um, have have done successfully and have thrived uh, th- through as a result. And so I think that's leading to a certain amount of angst and frustration with from people who I think, in a certain sense, feel like maybe they've been lied to, right? They've been taught to have lower expectations uh, than they maybe otherwise should have. Yeah, I think there's no no question that when you kind of, you know, build sort of institutions and um, individual lives relying on abortion, I mean, it's so funny. I've, I've written a whole law review article on the reliance um, language and the reliance interests in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And when you really think about it, it's quite, um, it's quite pernicious and you see that it really has actually, in some sense, it's sort of descriptively true that our culture and our workplaces and, the, and, and women's equality has been built around this right to abortion, but it's been done so in this really horribly distortive way that, as you say, you know, as we've been talking about, you know, really, um, really takes responsibility away from employers, uh, the, you know, the public at large, um, at fathers, um, from this important work of having children. Um, and so I think it's it's important, I think, um, and one of the other things I, I do in the Ruth Bader Ginsburg article is kind of drill down a bit on on this on this very classical notion 
uh, both, you know, that jurists like um, that Cicero and, and philosophers like Aristotle really understood about the law as a teacher. And so when you create a whole system, right, for 50 years, uh, you've had, you know, abortion as a constitutional right with in many jurisdictions free of charge, you're actually going to reshape culture around that. And so it creates incentives and disincentives to action, right? And so it's no surprise that you see, you know, um, rampant pregnancy discrimination um, when, you know, the Supreme Court is treating unborn human beings as, quote, potential life for 50 years, you know, you know, you're not going to really be ready to attend to the needs of pregnant women and caregiving parents unless you recognize the incalculable value of vulnerable dependent human beings both in the womb and outside the womb, right? I mean, it's just, it's not going to occur to you to, to sort of change the workplace around the needs of, of the vulnerable child and the dependent child and the caregivers of that child. You know, you're going to think, well, we've got abortion. And so what have you, what did you see in the years after Roe? You saw, you saw, you had been seeing, you know, with sort of the women's movement, an uptick in things like maternity leave. Well, all of a sudden there's a, uh, you know, a, a, an abrupt stop to all that. And you start seeing employers, right. employers instead, um, you know, pay for much, much cheaper abortion. And so, you know, what else would we think? I mean, the other thing I want to mention that I think is a huge issue um, that I've written a lot about um, is this ri the rise in sexual risk taking that comes also through, you know, an easy, you know, easy access to abortion. And what you see is that it it, it leads not only to more abortion, but also to more single motherhood, right? When people think that abortion or sorry, childbearing is, you know, uh, you're, you've completely protected against it with this sort of abortion insurance, you're going to take more risks. And that's exactly what we've seen in our culture. And who does it harm the most? Well, it harms poor single mothers who have, you know, are bereft of paternal support because we've disconnected, you know, um, uh, sex with with responsibilities and responsibilities for sex. And so it's, you know, when we when we look at what's the leading cause of poverty, we see it's single motherhood. And so those are the people who I think are the most harmed by this whole mentality, um, you know, which which sort of sees, um, which sort of build things around abortion um, and, and the right to abortion, which is what we've done for the last 50 years in our in our country. Do we have a, a fix, Erica, or, you know, policy suggestions or even ways to change the culture that kind of fight against the reality that you're talking about of businesses and corporations being reluctant sometimes to make accommodations that would allow women to have a family while continuing their career? Because I think a lot of times the pro-life position is a little bit straw man saying that, you know, we just want women to stop working and taking take and to become full-time caretakers of children. And while that's a great choice for many women if they want to do it, that's not our point, is we want women to be able to do what they want to do, and oftentimes that means having a family and a career. So how do we make that more possible for more women? Yeah, you know, I think it's important to conceive of rights, um, of all of our rights, as um, the way that, you know, older generations of people who were interested in rights, you know, going all the way back to Mary Wollstonecraft and the vindication of the rights of women, but then even further back in sort of, um, you know, much older ways of conceiving as, of rights is um, that they're really built upon prior duties. And so when we're thinking about, you know, the kinds of, um, of rights we want to give women and men, of course, um, in, in families and workplaces and all those types of things, we have to see that they're, they're the prior duty, that the first duty that mothers and fathers have is to their children. And so, 
making workplaces more hospitable um, to caregivers is not only good for those working women, um, but it's also just a good for working men as well, you know, who want to be, generationally speaking, far more involved in, in their children's lives. And so I think there's a number of things, um, policies um, that, that you know, you could do, um, you could, you know, work at. And, and some, you know, we're already starting to see for sure, um, you know, the main the main approach is just increased flexibility, I think is, is sort of key. Um, you know, but I think there is a way in which this has to go together, any any sorts of workplace accommodations that you might have. And, you know, I could sort of list a whole bunch like, you know, predictable scheduling that's especially necessary for poor, the poor. I think part-time pay equity where people are, you know, paid, um, you know, um, equitably, justly according to, you know, how much they work and they're not paid disproportionately less because they're part-time, which is what many, many caregivers, women especially, but, you know, sometimes men also would really like. Things like job sharing, telecommuting, all these types of things. Um, but I think there's also a way in which we need to support, uh, you know, child rearing, not only through something like paid leave, but also through much, much, much more generous either tax credits or allowances. Um, there's all sorts of things you could do with Social Security. I mean, I'm not a policy maker or policy wonk, but I think it's a, a real key thing is is you know not discriminating on um, in favor of those families who have who contract out their caregiving to others. I think that's really key because we want to first and foremost always support the family in its most important work, which is caring for children, and allow the family itself to determine how they do that. But what you have to do, I think, in conjunction with that, is put more restrictions on abortion. And 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 so you see, you know, in red states, you see restrictions on abortion, and not so many maybe workplace accommodations. In blue states, you see maybe more workplace accommodations or that, you know, the state has tried to, you know, uh, force um, the, you know, employer's hand. And, and you actually see far less abortion in the red states. Now, that's not to, um, to uh, praise the red states and not doing those important things, but it is to say that, that you know, regulating abortion does, um, you know, help to, you know, pull in this, this, um, this sort of, sex taking risk that I was talking about. And so it makes people just make more responsible choices with regard to sexuality. And I think those two things have to be done together. So I think it's a bit unfair, I think, for both pro-choice and pro-lifers to say, well, let's just pass all these great work family accommodations and, you know, don't worry about the, the abortion laws. And I think we actually do have to be doing both because um, it's really important to, you know, show the value we have for human life starting in the womb and the value for caregivers who are caring for that incredibly valuable human life. I, and it has to be done, I think, together. Yeah, that's a great point, Erica. Do you think, I mean, one good thing from this crazy 2020 pandemic year, do you think that some of these more flexible work policies or hybrid office part work from home, do you think some of those things would stick around and, and help uh, families that have careers and also children? I, I do hope so. You know, I think um, there's actually just a study recently out. Um, I think Brad Wilcox, maybe it's in the Washington Post, talking about how marriages have actually gotten on the whole stronger during this time. And, you know, uh, there's other studies that show that teenagers are much happier because they've been spending more time, or they think, because they've been spending more time with their, their parents. And so I think that with technology, and you've seen, yeah, we've gotten sort of a push with uh, you know, the coronavirus and, and, and you know, the, the quarantines that have been required and the distancing that's been required. There's sort of a push for technology to try to bring more work back to the home. And that is, I think, a huge solution for 
a great number of employees um, who could start to, um, you know, see that kind of collaboration in, in the home. I mean, one of the things that Brad Wilcox points out in the Washington Post article is that women have been more happy because the fathers are home more and they're just taking on more of the caregiving, the cooking, the cleaning that, you know, women who are, are generally um, home, you know, more of the time, even if they're working, are generally the ones who do that kind of work. And so to see that kind of collaboration, which we saw in the agrarian home, come back, you know, so it's like, you know, the industrialization, industrial revolution sort of broke that apart, right? And so you can see that the technological revolution could really bring work back into the home. Of course, this isn't true for all people. There are certainly whole, you know, um, areas of work where, um, you wouldn't get to see um, people do their work from home. And so there would have to be a real, um, you know, a, 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 you know, whether it's on-site on child care so people can actually bring their children to work. Um, I think that that would be a really wonderful innovation. Obviously, flex time, um, having more workplaces, um, you know, distribution centers, things like that outside of cities so people can actually work close to home so people aren't spending so much time in commutes. Um, I think all those things, yeah, we could see that, um, there could be, you know, big, significant changes because of because of COVID nineteen. Hopefully, a silver lining in, in all of this. Yeah, you know, Erica, law shapes culture as much as culture shapes law, right? This is, I think, a thing that it can be tough to see sometimes. You know, there's that idea that you hear sometimes politics is downstream from culture, but it's not necessarily true, right? I mean, that's what Roe taught us is that politics can form new culture. It can create, in Roe's case, a more violent and indifferent culture and this is like in the context of the free market discussion we're having and some of the weaknesses of of the free market approach to our social problems you know this is the the free market uh but a market whose moral conscience has been taught to accept that violence that indifference as a way of daily life like what this means is that uh our politics our law our government in the classical sense right of of the polis of the people of a commonwealth that the government must play, I think, a critical role in renewing our culture in some way. You know, we've talked with Charlie Camosi in the past about sort of a need for a new great awakening, I think, not just among the people, but in government, too. Um, but shifts like this are tough. I mean, how do you how do you see these tensions playing out in the years to come on these issues? Right. I think I think you're again, right, um, right on that. I, I think government, because, you know, the government represents the community at large, um, it, it really does need to play sort of the guiding role in making the nation more hospitable to family life, because really it's the only thing that's strong enough um, to, you know, work against um, uh, um, the really strong um, capitalistic tendencies that start to when there's nothing else, um, when religion has receded and that sort of thing. Um, that those sorts of ways of thinking about, um, as you say, social problems tend to to creep into the way to the way we think, right? In this cost benefit um, kind of analysis sort of way. So I think you're right um, that government needs to do that. And so I think you know you do see a lot of hope because you see both sides of the aisle for very different reasons um, want to support caregiving. Um, you know, if uh, Joe Biden does become president in a couple of weeks here. I um, would hope that one of the first things he does is, um, you know, with the Congress, um, pass um, the care legislation that he's talked about. Um, hopefully, you know, some Republicans um, can ensure that that families are able to make their own decisions, that it's not like a full, full-throated, you know, institutional daycare kind of model. Um, it seemed like there there was some of that in there, but there was also 
um, you know, some some sort of ideas for family allowance and that type of thing. So I think that you could see in an economically responsible way, um, the government try to make, you know, culture more hospitable to caregiving by um, putting, you know, more incentives, whether it's tax incentives or other types of requirement um, on especially bigger employers to support, you know, support the work of care. And I think you see that on the left, you know, you mentioned Alistair McIntyre in his book, Dependent Rational Animals, which is, of course, a really, really wonderful book. He calls upon care feminists like Eva Fetter Kitte. And I would mention also Robin West is a really another really good one who I've learned so much from. And that's, you know, really um, the bulk of their argument against sort of the autonomy feminists, you know, is is that um, they've uh, made it more difficult to support care work. And that Robin West at Georgetown, who is a, pro, a pro-choice, you know, feminist, but, a, you know, a leading legal scholar, she talks about how there's this tension between um, sort of the pro-choice arguments and legislation that supports caregiving. And I think that's exactly right, which is what, you know, I'm trying to sort of... Um, you know, show in, in my work as well is that if you want to support caregiving, that the pro-life position really um, is much more uh, of a thoroughgoing, consistent position. Um, one of the ways that, you know, one of the things that irks me most, and I'm sure they've done this on purpose, but is this new term, you know, it's always like the shifting terminology <laughs> in a pro-choice movement, but abortion care, I mean, even my children are kind of like, mom, what, what right. are you saying, you know? And so it's they're really, you know, trying to sort of you know, step on this move, I think, or, or uh, springboard off this move that we see in, in a lot of academic literature, but then also in popular culture of supporting care work. I think that's an excellent thing. It's an advance for sure. But I think there's a real contradiction at the heart of it, which is um, this idea of abortion and abortion as care, especially. You know, it's it's just crazy. Every time I hear that, you know, abortion care or, you know, you hear some of the, the variants of that or you hear the, the things like abortion access. You know, it's, it's an access issue and it's like access to what? What is the object? Or, or reproductive justice. Justice for who? Right. Oh, of course. And you see reporters now whose, whose jobs, they say, are to report like on reproductive justice issues. Um, and of course, this is just PR. It's the classic thing you do in a debate, right? When you're losing a debate, well, just shift the terms then. You know, if you've lost one debate, create a new one without acknowledging it. Uh, but, you know, it's like if, if you haven't thought about these terms too deeply, the, the substitute I always have in my mind when I hear something like, you know, abortion rights is just imagine, you know, two centuries ago, hearing similar things from the likes of a John Calhoun, right, of, well, what about slaveholder rights, you know? And it's like, that's certainly a phrase that describes maybe a certain interest group, but it's not a good, it's not a social good. Uh, And so to just be able to, you know, separate out uh, rights in the culture we're in, where it's like anytime rights are imputed to something, we assume, oh, that's a good, it's a good, because people are talking about rights, uh, it's like, no, you've got to think about it in this broader context that we've been discussing here of, of rights and responsibilities of, of uh, what is claimed and what is owed. And uh, if, if the ledger is out of balance there, then it ain't a right. Yeah, that's that's right, Tom. And, you know, Erica writes on this. I mean, everything she writes is required reading. But she's got a, a long-form book coming out for us in uh, early early next year, The Rights of Women Reclaiming a Lost Vision. Erica, can you kind of preview for us what that book is all about and uh, when when you think it can be in our hands? <laughs> sure, I'd love to. Actually, uh, building exactly on what you've just said, it's, you know, sort of setting forth what I would call an authentic reproductive justice. Um, and so what I do is it's an intellectual history of a lost vision of women's rights. So it's a, a hefty book, um, but it's a sort of a philosophy, um, some biography and a lot of constitutional law and legal history. 
uh, to really showcase, starting with Mary Wollstonecraft and up through, um, you know, the 19th century uh, women's rights advocates in our country, and then all the way actually through the original platform for the National Organization for Women, um, you see, you know, this view, although it's much thinner in now, of course, now's vision than it was, of course, in Mary Wollstonecraft, but there's this, you know, once predominant view that our rights properly rest upon concrete responsibilities to God, to self, to family, and to community. And so, um, you know, Mary Wollstonecraft, um, you know, she she championed rights so that women and men could strive together, as I was speaking about earlier, for moral and intellectual excellence, which she understood to be, uh, you know, really the purpose of life, right? And so then I go on and, and introduce, you know, readers to the advocates of joint property rights, suffrage, voluntary motherhood, and that's a, a topic all in itself, which I think is really important and central to, to the book, and then workers' rights, and, um, and showing how these early efforts uh, for women's legal, political, and social equality actually honored both the reproductive asymmetries between men and women, as I spoke of before, but while also promoting their shared responsibilities in all realms of life. And, you know, I won't go on for too long, but the story actually comes to a bit of a head with actually Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And and so I sort of detail, um, you know, sort of in one chapter, um, her winnings in the 1970s, and then the next chapter, how, um, you know, the abortion rights um, kind of crusade of her, of her, um, especially in her, in her academic writing, but then also in many, many dissents on the, on the, on the court, um, you know, really, I think are at, at, contradictory um, to one another. And, and I claim that she and, uh, has, you know, her her kind of work contributed to what some feminists have called the stalled gender revolution, where women, you know, have achieved these remarkable gains educationally and professionally, but without, without this valuing of the essential caregiving that, that, you know, both mothers and fathers undertake in the home. And one last plug for the book is that I rely in great measure um, on my, um, you know, intellectual hero, Marianne Glendon. So for those of you who love her work, um, there's an entire chapter, chapter nine out of 10, devoted to her, kind of the corpus of her work, really calling from it insights for how to think through um, many of the things we've been talking about um, today. But she's really taught me so much. um, And she um, really is kind of the hero, I think, of the book, along with Mary Wollstonecraft. (laughs) That sounds fantastic. I can't wait to uh, get a copy of that great book and uh, and to share it with others. We're going to link to uh, your um, Twitter and all the other places to find you, your articles that we've been discussing here in the show notes for this conversation. Eric, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Something we do every show is our shot of gratitude. We just share something that we're grateful for. Uh, but I'll start with Noah and then we'll come to you. Noah, what's something you're grateful for? You know, Tom, something I'm grateful for is we got to be a part of a, a little birthday party for my two-year-old niece this week. It was Puppy Dog Pals themed. If there are any parents or uncles like me familiar with that adorable show, I think it's like German. It's got these little CGI pugs running around. Can't say I am, but that sounds really fun. At one point, they learned about American history. They learned about different things. And their owner's an inventor. But anyway, it was delightful to, uh, to celebrate my little niece's birthday. Uh, Tom, what's something you're grateful for? You know, I think uh, we're, we're recording this conversation on the feast of uh, St. John Paul the Great. And, uh, of course, in living memory for many people, um, you know, Pope John Paul II was a great witness uh, against the, the threat and dehumanization of, of Soviet communism, um, but just a witness in the culture generally. And, you know, he wrote in particular about some of the themes we're talking about today. And I'll just read uh, very briefly from that. John Paul writes, in transforming culture so that it supports life, 
Women occupy a place in thought and action which is unique and decisive. It depends on them to promote a new feminism which rejects the temptation of imitating models of male domination in order to acknowledge and affirm the true genius of women in every aspect of the life of society and overcome all discrimination, violence, and exploitation. So just incredible to me, I think in, in particular in, in light of this conversation today, but I'm, I'm uh, thankful and grateful for the life and, and continuing, wit- continuing witness of uh, John Paul the Great. Erica, how about you? What's something you're grateful for? Well, that was really wonderful. Um, and of course, uh, very inspirational to me in my life as well, coming from a, a pro-choice feminist background and really being pulled over um, to uh, you know, be a, a faithful mm-hmm. Catholic as well by someone like John Paul II, who had a great influence on me. So thank you for that. And I guess I'm grateful for many things. I just have to mention, you know, grateful for Amy Coney Barrett. Um, but I do want to say um, mainly really grateful for my husband, um, Dan, who has kind of made all things possible. Um, as I mentioned, we have seven children, um, ages um, almost 19 to two. And it's just been such a joy and something as, um, you know, one from a very broken home growing up, I never thought would be possible. I never thought I would actually like something like that. But but the joy that I've received from um, having such a really wonderful, happy marriage and such a um, full, full life as a mother and then as a scholar um, has really been made possible um, from from my, my husband, Dan. Thank you so much, Erica, for your witness and for the conversation today. We hope to have you on again in the future. Oh, you guys are awesome. Really great. Thank you for joining us, Erica. All right. If you enjoyed our conversation today, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast all the different platforms. Give us a rating, leave a review, message a friend, let them know you've discovered life, liberty, and law. Share this episode on the new feminism. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, just email us at life at AUL.org. I am Tom Shakely, and until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.